Oh God, your life is a life of glory and joy and love. A love overflowing. Overflowing into your creation. A never-ending love. Oh God, your life is the true life. The true circle of life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God. Giving glory to and receiving glory from one another. Within the Trinity. From all eternity and to all eternity. Oh God, may your love and joy and life fill us this day. May we share in your joyous love now and forever. Amen. I also want to read for us from 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Here again, the Word of God. I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we ask now that you would speak truth to us through your word, that you might enlighten us and fill us with wisdom and give us the strength to obey what you teach us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So whose side are you on in the great war of our era? Uh, it's really a war that goes all the way back to the fall uh, in Genesis 3, but it's especially intense, it seems, in these days. Uh, I'm talking about the gender war, of course, or the battle of the sexes as it's known. Uh, that's how it is between men and women these days. There is attention, there is misunderstanding, there's strife, there's war. And it is a war that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve together turned against God and then turned against one another. And men and women have been fighting one another ever since. Isn't it interesting, it seems that the more our culture stresses equality between men and women, the more animosity we get, the more animosity there is between the sexes. That's why we constantly hear about the gender pay gap, uh, the so-called war on women, uh, toxic masculinity, and other catchphrases that have become common parlance in our culture. There are a lot of single women who I have heard express great frustration over the lack of good men as prospects for marriage, and I've also seen a lot of single men, especially outside of the church, but sometimes even within it, who have decided to give up on marriage altogether because they see it as such a bad deal for men. The sexual revolution of the 1960s that was supposed to bring so much happiness and freedom to men and women has actually brought misery and bondage. It has eroded our sense of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. It has dismantled marriage and family life. The sexual revolution has mainstreamed pornography, which enslaves men and dehumanizes women. 
The sexual revolution has normalized fornication before marriage, divorce after marriage, and cohabitation instead of marriage. In fact, really one of the biggest problems we face in our society is not so much that people divorce after they get married, that used to be the issue, but they simply don't get married at all. Of course, we've also got the Obergefell Supreme Court ruling, which forced upon us all a new civil definition of marriage, which is really at odds with the whole purpose of the institution uh, as God ordained it and intended it. The sexual revolution has given birth to the LGBTQ plus movement. And the problem is not just that every one of those letters represents a way of life that is contrary to God's design. Uh, the plus at the end of it tells you that the rebellion continues to evolve. It's not over. Who knows what perverse forms of sexuality will be next to gain social acceptance and legal support? Will it be P for polygamy? Or perhaps a P for pedophilia? Will it be another B for bestiality? Or perhaps an I for incest? We think, oh, surely that could never happen. But so many things have happened that people said could never happen. And the reality is these things are being discussed seriously in the academy and in the media. All of these alternative sexualities just further our culture's confusion over what it means to be a man or a woman. We have the egalitarian movement and the feminist movement. These movements have managed to turn women against each other, men and women against each other, by saying really that men and women are no different. They're really just interchangeable pieces. They're identical under the skin. And whatever differences there are between men and women, those differences are really just the result of social conditioning. And they lead to oppression, and so we need to do something about them. And so the push from egalitarianism and from feminism is to engage in all kinds of social engineering in order to neutralize and eradicate all gender differences. That's the goal, to undo nature, as it were, so that uh, these gender differences are eliminated. Likewise, we have a movement called identity politics, which furthers the division between men and women, further turns men and women against one another. Identity politics really reduces individuals to the gender or race of which they are a part and says, because you are this gender or because you are this race, this is how you must think. And so identity politics tells men they really can't have an opinion on abortion because that's a woman's issue. You're not allowed to have any thoughts or an opinion on it. And identity politics tells women uh, that they better favor so-called women's interests, particularly abortion. That's kind of the, the, ultimate, uh, the ultimate issue for women in our culture today. Women better support it and get on board with it because it's in the best interest of all women to support abortion and these other uh, left-wing causes. And women who don't go along with them then are considered traitors to their own sex. This is identity politics. Recent scandals have helped expose widespread sexual abuse of women by powerful men all throughout our culture. Of course, it's Hollywood that got the most notoriety, but it's not limited to Hollywood. It's a much bigger problem than that. And then, of course, you've also got cases where women have made false accusations of harassment or abuse against men, and that doesn't help things either. This whole culture of abuse breeds distrust. It makes it difficult for men and women to trust one another. I've already mentioned abortion, but I think the abortion issue really shows us just how alienated men and women are from one another in our culture. 
Uh, for one thing, the Roe versus Wade ruling makes abortion a decision entirely uh, between a woman and her doctor. And so the man who fathered the child has no say. As far as Roe versus Wade is concerned, every child is fatherless. Uh, the, the, the father has no say uh, in the matter. But further, most women who procure abortions, who terminate their pregnancies in this way, do so precisely because the baby's father pressures them to do it or because he refuses to care for the child that he has helped to create. And so abortion really is the total disfiguring of motherhood and fatherhood. It cannot be thought of just as a woman's issue. It's a man's issue as well. And it shows us just how deeply divided men and women are from one another, how much men and women are failing one another and failing to be what God has called them to be. Around all of these issues, there is a great deal of shame. Our sexuality is so much a part of who we are. It goes so much to the core of who we are. Anytime things go wrong sexually, there is a deep sense of shame. And so shame is connected with all of these issues. Even though our culture is programming us and seeking to train us to be shameless about these things. Our culture says, be shameless. Do whatever you want sexually so long as there is consent. Do whatever you want. There should be no shame. And shame is just a holdover. Uh, of an earlier oppressive religious era. But the reality is the shame persists. And all of these issues I've identified, and certainly there are many more I have not mentioned, uh, these issues are not just out there in the world. They're also in here in the church. The church is not immune to the problems and confusions uh, that have sprung up from the sexual revolution. In fact, if anything, uh, those problems are worse in the church than they are in the world because out there in the world, really nobody cares what you do. It is a sexual free-for-all. But in the church, uh, we often have the same sins, but there's pressure to cover them up because we've all got to be good Christians, right? And so there's a great there's a great deal of pressure then to become a hypocrite, a sexual hypocrite. It's a huge problem in the church. In the world, it's out there in the open. Everybody knows what's going on. In the church, those things are covered up, and it makes the problem that much worse. It keeps these things in the dark where they can't really be dealt with. It is absolutely crucial for us to understand this is the crisis of our age. And it is crucial for us as Christians to understand these issues to understand what Scripture says about them, to be wise about them. We want to understand God's Word, and we want to understand God's world. What God commands us in His Word, and we want to understand God's design, how God made the world to work. We've got to understand the Scriptures, how God wants us to live, and we've got to understand from nature the reasons why this is so, the reasons why God commands what he commands. Scripture's rules and nature's reasons go together, you could say. We want to live in accord with God's commands. We want to live in accord with God's design. And we want to help others do so as well. Explaining not just how God calls us to live, but also the forgiveness that he makes available to us. Forgiveness that covers our shame, that wipes it out, that cleanses us from all of these kinds of sins. We need to know about these things, not just for our own good, so we can make good decisions about sex and marriage and children, but also so we can speak the truth 
in love to our culture so we can be truthful and persuasive as we seek to disciple our culture in these areas. And so this week and then next, we're going to be looking at these issues, this sexual crisis that faces us. And I think we really need to start with the basics. How basic can we get? We need to understand what God says about manhood and womanhood. And so let's do that. And I might have more to say to the men this week. I'll try to balance that out uh, next week. But think about all the texts we read this morning, all the passages of Scripture we read this morning. All of them address our maleness and our femaleness. And so what I want to do is take all those texts together. We're not going to really camp out on any one of them. But just take all of them together and look at some of the big picture truths that they teach. But before we do that, I want to put a couple caveats in, a couple qualifiers that will kind of frame this discussion, because any time in the church we go to talk about these things, sometimes I think we have ways of discussing these topics that are unhelpful. First, when we discuss manhood and womanhood, we inevitably talk about roles. We have to talk about roles, the roles that God has assigned to men and women. That's one of our big claims that flows out of scripture is that men and women have different roles to play in church, in home, and in society. But that language about roles can be misunderstood. You see, your sex is not merely a role, it's who you are. Sex is not just biological, it's psychological. You are male or female. God made you a male or a female all the way down. Every cell of your body is either male or female. And you're male or female all the way down to the very depths of your soul. And that's why men and women have different roles to play. Different souls, different roles. Uh, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a matter of who we are. But I think the confusion comes in sometimes because of the way we think about roles. You know, you can think of a role as what happens in the theater. And in the theater, actors and actresses have roles. And and the role may be entirely foreign to the actor or actress who plays it. Maybe that an actor or actress plays a role that's completely different from who they are. So the actor himself may be a, a really good person, but he may play the part of a murderer. You might have a really nice guy who, as in the theater, plays the role of a murderer. And you could say, well, in the theater, the actor's not himself when he's in his role. He's playing the part of someone else. And I think sometimes that kind of bleeds over into our discussion of these things in the church. We think, oh, roles, it doesn't really matter who I'm made to be. I'm supposed to somehow conform myself to this role. And the role can be viewed as completely extrinsic to our natures. It's not really related to the essence of who we are. And I want to say, no, that's, that's not the case. That's not what we mean by roles here. The roles that God assigns to you as a man or as a woman, those roles are rooted in the nature he has given you. There is, in God's order of things, in God's way of designing things, there is a congruence. There is a fit between who you are, and the role you're called to play. And so don't detach assigned roles from biology. Don't detach assigned roles from nature. What God calls you to do, the role he gives you to play as a man or a woman, fits with the way he made you. And to the degree that it doesn't, that's due to the fall and needs to be addressed accordingly. 
So there's nothing arbitrary about these rules. They're, they're, they're fitting. There's a fittingness to them. The second caveat I want to give you is this. Uh, usually the, the, the traditional or I would say biblical view of man and uh, woman is called complementarianism. Maybe you know that word, maybe you don't, but that's the word that's often used, complementarianism. And that word is used because the view is men and women complement one another. They're different from one another, but in such a way that they complement and complete one another. But again, just as roles can be misunderstood, so complementarianism can be misunderstood as well. The point is not so much that men and women fit together like puzzle pieces. You know, if that were the case, then where masculinity ends, femininity begins, and there would never be any overlap between men and women. Puzzle pieces don't overlap. That's the whole point in terms of how they fit together. Now, in some traditional societies, men and women did more or less fit together as puzzle pieces. There were very rigid stereotypes for men and women. Really, it would be the opposite error of our society's attempt to be androgynous. In our society, there's this big push for androgyny to eradicate the differences between men and women. But in most traditional societies, if anything, they went to the other extreme. They had very rigid stereotypes for men and women. And so every task or trait was labeled as either masculine or feminine, and it was one or the other, and that was it. There was no overlap. But these rigid stereotypes, well, I think we can appreciate the way in which they take sex differences seriously, these very rigid stereotypes that want to label every trait or task as masculine or feminine, that kind of rigid stereotyping goes much further than Scripture does in describing and legislating what manhood and womanhood should look like on the ground. I think there's actually a great deal of freedom and flexibility in Scripture's view, a great deal of room for variation, for diversity, so not every man has to look exactly the same, not every woman has to look exactly the same. There's a range of personality types for men and for women, range of interests. We we need to take all of that into account. We need to take it into account without falling into the error of our day, which makes gender fluid. What I'm saying is there is... There are areas of overlap between men and women. There is a flexibility in the way that men express their masculinity. There's flexibility in the way women express their femininity. Uh, So we don't want to fall into the problem of overly rigid stereotypes, overly rigid roles that would be too confining, more confining than Scripture itself. Now, think about these texts we've read this morning. Take all these texts together. If you were to take all these texts and combine them together into a thesis statement, a kind of summarizing statement about men and women, how would you put it? I think you'd get something like this. This would be a summarizing statement for the passages that we've read this morning. Men and women are the same but different. There is a sameness and a differentness. Men and women are the same but different. And what we need to do this morning and then next week as well is unpack how men and women are the same and how men and women are different. I think how men and women are the same is actually much simpler. It's articulating how they are different that's really difficult. It's interesting how you can just take Bible passages that speak about men and women and they tend to highlight one or the other of these truths. You've got some Bible passages that really emphasize how men and women are the same, what men and women have in common. So we read Genesis 1 this morning. 
Men and women are both created in the image of God. We share in the imago dei. We have the same created worth and value. In that sense, we are the same. Both men and women bear God's image. Uh, We didn't read this, but Galatians 3.28, Paul says there is neither male nor female in Christ Jesus. So we not only share the same created status as image bearers, we, we share the same redemptive status. Men and women share the same union with Christ. We share the same redemption, the same ultimate inheritance in the end. Or 1 Corinthians 11, 11. In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. What is Paul saying here? He's saying there, this is not so much maybe about the sameness, but it's about the mutual interdependence of the man and the woman. And this is why we can't ever be adversaries as men and women. Men can't win without women also winning, and women can't win without men also winning. Uh, There's just no other way because the woman's not independent of the man and the man's not independent of the woman. We need each other. We need each other if we're going to do what God calls us to do. We need to recognize this interdependence. And I would say there's no doubt that what men and women have in common is greater than their differences. Uh, Robert Capon uh, once said, men and women are one species, but just barely. Um, men always find that funnier than women do. <laughs> I think I see what he's getting at, wanting to emphasize the, you know, the differences. But I think actually that kind of statement, uh, borderline exaggerates the differences between men and women, which the fact that men tend to find that funnier than women even tells you their senses of humor are different as men and women. Um, the point here is, what do we have in common? What do we share? Men and women share their humanity. We share the imago dei. We are made in the image of God. That's the same in men and women. And we share in the same redemption. We have the same union with Christ. And, and there's a very real sense in which we need one another. Men can't do what they're called to do without women, and neither can women do what they're called to do without men. You know, there's the old feminist line, a man needs a woman like a fish needs a bicycle. No, what the Apostle Paul says is a man is a woman needs a man like a man needs a woman. We just need one another. That's how it is. So you see texts that speak this way in Scripture. But then there are other texts that describe the differences between men and women, which show us that our shared humanity is expressed differently as men and women. And God has called us to different things, to different roles as men and women. Take a text like Ephesians 5, Paul's well-known marriage text. Ephesians 5 describes the man, the husband, as the Christ-like head or leader, and the woman, the wife, as the church-like follower or helper. So the man is the head, he plays the role of Christ in the marriage, and the woman is his Helper, following his leadership, she plays the part of the church in this drama called marriage. That's the script, as it were, for the roles within marriage. The man is the head. He's the ultimate vision caster, the ultimate decision maker in the marriage. He's responsible not just for himself as an individual, he is responsible for the whole state of his family. And the wife has a calling to follow him, to submit to him, to respect his leadership, to respect the office he holds as a husband, to be his helper in this way. 
And so clearly there, husbands and wives have different roles in marriage. That's how God has designed marriage to work. Take 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, uh, which again describes the man as the head of the woman. And then verse 9, a little further on, says man was not created for the woman, but woman for the man. There's a kind of asymmetry in the male-female relation that Paul's getting at there. Or take the passage we read from 1 Timothy 2, which talks about roles within the church. And Paul says there that in the church, women should learn quietly and submissively, not teaching or exercising authority over men. And then he gives his reasons, which are not based in culture. In fact, in that culture, virtually every other religion had its priestesses. So so when Paul says that women are not to uh, exercise authority or have a teaching office in the church, he's actually being countercultural. But the reasons that he gives for this are transcultural. They go all the way back to the order of creation and the fall. These historical events that are going to be the same. They're going to be true for all times and all places. In the order of creation and the fall, Paul goes back to this in in Genesis to explain why things should work out this way in the church. Why you can't have a female pastor or ruling elder in the church. We have different roles to play in the church. Pastors and elders are to be male. So clearly there's a differentiation in role there. I think the really hard thing to do, as I said, is to articulate not just what uh, the different roles are between men and women, but why they should work out in this way, why they should work out in this way that God commands them to. But what I want to do this morning and then next week as well is take a stab at explaining why God has given men and women different roles, how God has made us differently, different from one another, and how we ought to learn to appreciate those differences. So let me start with this. First, um, men and women have different orientations. That's probably not the best word to use here. Men and women have different postures towards the world, different ways of engaging with the rest of the creation. You see this even with little kids, right? What do boys want to play with? What do girls want to play with? Boys want to play with trucks and guns. Girls want to play with dolls. And in a sense, you could say that tells you everything you need to know right there. And studies have shown, even though it's politically incorrect, so the research gets buried, but studies have shown that these preferences are not just a matter of nurture, but of nature. They don't go away even when people try to drive them out and make the boys play with dolls and the girls play with trucks. It just, it just doesn't work. These preferences, these differences are rooted in who we are and what we are by nature, by virtue of God's creation. And I think the explanation for this, uh, in terms of the differences between even boys and girls, the explanation for it goes back to creation. And the different ways in which God formed the man and the woman in the beginning. Think about this. The man is formed from the earth in Genesis chapter 2. But then the woman is created out of the man's side. Thus, the man is primarily oriented towards the earth. Towards the world of things from which he came. And the woman is primarily oriented towards the man, towards people and relationships from the one from whom, whose side she came. 
The man was made from the soil. He comes from the soil and he is tasked with cultivating the soil. The woman comes from the man, the side of the man, and is tasked with being his helper. And so you see this difference in orientation stems from the different origins that men and women have. Men and women are as different in life task as they are in their created origin. The different method of creation used for each points to a difference in their fundamental area of interest. And again, it's not that there's no overlap. Remember that. There's there's plenty of overlap here. But in terms of fundamental orientation, the man has a more immediate relationship with the world of things. Whereas the woman has a more direct relationship with the world of persons. The man is more oriented towards the world of things. The woman is more oriented towards persons and relationships. It's interesting to see how this plays out even in our culture today. Uh, This is an interesting story. You may remember from last year, Google fired one of its engineers. As far as I know, this man's not a Christian, have no reason to think that he is. Uh, A man named James Damore. Um, Sometime last year, he had privately circulated a very well-researched document, because the document itself eventually became public, but a very well-researched document that attempted to explain why fewer women than men went into STEM, science, technology, engineering, um, and, and, and why are fewer women in these fields? This was a problem for Google because, of course, they wanted to be politically correct and be diverse and have a 50-50 balanced workforce. And so they were pushing for this. And James Damore just wrote a document that said, you know, maybe the reason you're not getting this, maybe the reason that women are not um, flocking to uh, careers in, say, computer programming or engineering is simply because they don't want to. He didn't rule out the possibility that bias was involved, that women were being discriminated against uh, at times. But his research showed that the discrepancy is far more likely due to innate differences between men and women. That men and women simply have different interests, different, different interests, different preferences, and those preferences work themselves out in different choices. Men and women tend to make different choices if given the freedom to do so. Saul Damore really was arguing. But he was fired for, quote, advancing harmful gender stereotypes in the workplace. There it is. All right. And of course, Damore came back and pointed out the irony of this, that here you got the highest tech company in the world firing a man for simply stating the well-established findings of science. That's all he was doing, is pointing to the scientific research that bears this out. It's interesting what's happened in Norway. Uh, Norway is probably the most gender-neutralized country on the planet a country that uses the force of law and the pressure of cultural expectation to push men and women towards androgyny. That's been a very stated goal. They want a completely androgynous society, and they seek to raise their kids in a very androgynous kind of way. The whole educational system is geared towards this. And as part of trying to equalize things, uh, in Norway, they will actively recruit women into traditionally male occupations and vice versa. And yet, despite all that cultural pressure, despite all of that training, the differences between men and women in their chosen fields of occupation 
persist. Nature is pretty stubborn. The vast majority of Norwegian engineers continue to be men, and the vast majority of their nurses continue to be women. In fact, it's, it's become known as the Scandinavian gender paradox. And, and this is the, what the research shows. The more freedom men and women have to choose their own career path, the more gender segregated most jobs become. Because guess what? If you give men and women freedom to choose their own path, they'll choose very divergent paths more often than not. But this difference in orientation extends beyond uh, simply the work that we choose to do. Uh, It has to do with, with, with the fundamental way that we are oriented towards one another and towards the world. In terms of these differing postures towards the world, men feel a drive to protect and provide, whereas women feel a drive to nurture and to help. Every man knows in his bones, unless he's a badly deformed man, which we have a lot of today, but every man knows in his bones that he is supposed to protect women and children. And again, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to the beginning. All of these things find their source, their origin in the creation account. God gave Adam this protective orientation towards the woman in the beginning. God put Adam in the Garden of Eden and commanded him to guard it and keep it. Well, why guard it? What does that mean? He wasn't just guarding trees and plants. Of course, he was to guard his bride. He was to guard the woman who was placed in the garden with him. He was to guard her. That was his fundamental task. You know, that old slogan, women and children first. That's just the recognition that men are called to guard and keep. It's the recognition that's there in the very beginning in Genesis that men are called to lay down their lives in the protection of others. So go to any military cemetery and look at the tombstones. 99.999% of the deaths in war all through history have been men. Why is that? Go to the war memorials in Washington, D.C., where the names of fallen soldiers are listed. They are almost all the names of men. Men have always presumed it was their job to die for women if need be. Because that's just a man's orientation to the world. He is a protector. Men have always assumed that their lives are expendable in a way that the lives of women are not. Men have understood. Men die so women can live. That's just built into our natures. And to deny that is to deny our manhood. Think about the movie Saving Private Ryan, which I understand is based at least partly on a true story. It's about four brothers who are serving in the U.S. military in World War II. And it is discovered that three of the brothers have died. And so orders are given to bring the fourth brother home. And a group of men are assigned this mission to go get Private Ryan and bring him back home. And these men on this mission to go save Private Ryan, they, go, they do all kinds of extraordinary feats of courage to go find Private Ryan and bring him home. Why do they do that? It's really not to save Private Ryan. His life was just as expendable as any other privates serving on the front lines. It's to save his mother. 
It's to save his mother from grief. Because the men of that generation knew that no effort would be too great to spare a mother the sorrow of losing all four of her boys. There's this built-in desire that men have to be protectors. Now, I don't know if the men of our current generation are up to that. Men have been so emasculated in our day. But that's what manhood is all about. Saving Private Ryan is not about saving Private Ryan. They don't do it for his sake. They do it for his mother's sake, for her. And that's what it's all about. That's how men work. In God's order, men are built to protect. Men are designed to be protectors. It's simply part of a man's built-in job description where there is danger to face it and to face it for the sake of others. In fact, this is why, going back to jobs, this is why men do more dangerous jobs than women. About 94% of job-related deaths happen to men. 94% of on-the-job deaths happen to men. That little fact doesn't usually get brought up when feminists are complaining about the gender pay gap uh, or about the fact that women are underrepresented in certain professions. They never seem to worry about the fact that men are overrepresented in the most dangerous professions. But there it is, 94% of job-related deaths happen to men. But this is the way it should be. Because men are protectors. Men were designed to give themselves, to lay down their lives for the sake of others. And so it is rightly, overwhelmingly men who do the dangerous and dirty work that makes civilization possible. Camille Paglia, who's certainly no friend of the Christian faith, uh, but she uh, has uh, written some very interesting things on this issue about the interrelationship of men and women. She says the modern economy is a male epic in which women have found productive roles but could never have offered. And that's exactly right. That's by God's design. Because men are called to be the protectors and and therefore the builders of civilization in a unique way. Now next time we'll come back and talk more about the woman's role as a nurturer and helper, her orientation there. But let me wrap this up this morning. We do in our culture experience these gender wars or the battle of the sexes. And we need to know this is not the way God has designed us to live. He doesn't want us to be at odds with one another as men and women. He wants men and women to live together in harmony, working together to fulfill the mandate that he's given to the whole human race, men and women both. Women, more than anything else, need faithful Christian men. And men, more than anything else, need faithful Christian women. Male chauvinism on the one hand that looks down on women, or the girl power mantra on the other hand that that tries to either make women better than men or at least say that men and women are interchangeable. Those are just ways of pitting men and women against each other, of furthering the war between the sexes. And again, this goes all the way back to Satan's temptation in the garden where he ultimately pitted the man and the woman certainly against God, but also against one another. And every time we as men or as women demean and devalue the other sex, we are falling for Satan's lies, falling for Satan's temptation. Listen to this. Men and women are not enemies. Rather, we have a common enemy, Satan himself. 
who wants to divide us against one another and divide us against God. The battle of the sexes must come to an end. The battle of the sexes, and and indeed I would say, uh, well, let me put it this way, the answer to the battle of the sexes, and indeed the answer to all our sexual shame and guilt the, the shame and guilt we feel for all the ways we've gotten this wrong, all the ways we failed to be the man we were supposed to be or the woman we were supposed to be. The answer to the battle of the sexes and the answer to all of our sexual shame and guilt is found in the gospel. And you know why the gospel brings healing to us in this area? Because the gospel is simply the story of a bride and a groom. It's the story of a man and a woman. It's the story of Christ and his bride. It's the story of a husband and a wife. It's the story of Christ, the man who came to die for his bride, to protect her, to provide for her, to crush the serpent's head on her behalf, and to set her free, to rescue her and restore her. And we need to understand, we are Christ's bride. We are the church, the bride of Christ. And we've been washed and forgiven. We are clean We are clean and we have been set free. We're being renewed and restored and empowered to live the way we were designed to live. And now as the bride of Christ, we are his helper as he seeks to take dominion over the whole earth, subduing the nations to himself. That's our story. That's the story we're called to be a part of. And as we live within that story, all the ways in which we have failed to be the man I was supposed to be or the woman you were supposed to be, all those ways we failed, we find forgiveness and we find healing when we live out that story, the story of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for being a good and gracious God. We thank you for the way you have designed us and we ask your forgiveness for ways we have violated that design as men and women. We thank you for the great bridegroom of the church, Christ Jesus himself. And we thank you that through his death, all of our sin, including our sexual sin, can be forgiven. Through him, we know that our lust and our adultery can be forgiven. We know that abortion and sodomy can be forgiven. We know that all of our failures to act as real men or to act as real women, to live and act in the way that you have called us to and designed us to, all of this can be forgiven. And we know, too, that by the grace of Christ, as the Spirit has been poured out upon us through Him, through His grace, You are restoring us and empowering us to live right, to become faithful men and women, to live in accord with Your design. And I pray that You would do this more and more in our lives, that the war between the sexes might come to an end, that we might live the way You called us to do in harmony with one another, appreciating and celebrating the differences between us and remembering the sameness, all that we have in common. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Heavenly Father, do not withhold your tender mercies from us. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve us. And we have gathered today as your people, a people who desire to walk on the path of righteousness, May we forsake foolishness and go in the way of understanding. I pray, O Lord, that we would be teachable in all areas and that our desire would be to know your word and come before you in prayer. That you would grant humility and wisdom to our pastor and all you have called to be officers. And Lord, we pray for the upcoming ordination and are thankful for the addition of deacons and elders. You know what is good and right for us. 
May we honor you with our words and our thoughts and our deeds. Heavenly Father, you have blessed us tremendously, and we pray that you would lead us as we make decisions about the facility and building upgrades. May we be a people who are good stewards with what you have provided. You have granted us many who are able to serve you in various ways. May you continue to show us our gifts and that we should have the courage and the desire to use our gifts to help this body and our everyday community. O Lord, may we know what it is to be a neighbor to those around us. Hear us, O Lord, as we pray for the families of TPC, that students would be ready to work hard this school year, and that teachers would desire to impart wisdom on their students. We pray that children would honor their parents and that our households would be filled with joy and peace. Heavenly Father, may the students leaving for college remember their baptisms and be lights to those around them. The world cries out against our priest, your precepts. Grant us strength to fight against these temptations. O oh Lord, may our marriages be strong and faithful and our first response to one another be one of grace. As your people, we talk about the importance of marriage, but in the public square, we, do, we must do more than talk. We must be good examples. Use us, O Lord, to show the world your ways, and may we stand strong when there is confusion all around us. We pray for the singles of our church, that those who desire a spouse will find one. We pray for those seeking new or better employment. We pray for our expectant moms. We pray for those who are suffering in sickness or chronic illness, for those who have lost loved ones, for those with family and friends who are suffering, and for those with aging parents. And hear us now as we silently name those who are in particular need. And most of all, Lord, we pray that contentment will mark all of us in all situations. Search us, O Lord, and know our hearts. Try us and know our anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. And as we look to Jesus for all these things, hear us now as we pray to you the words that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 